Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be spending some time this morning looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, and, and discerning from that passage a message that I believe is very prevalent in the church today and very needed in the world at large. 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, you might wonder if you see on the board behind me, we'll be starting in verse 2. Maybe as you're turning there and you think, well, why, why are we going to start in verse 2? That seems kind of strange. It's just one verse away from the beginning of the chapter. Uh, and it's interesting to me as, as I see these uh, occasionally as we go through our Bibles, we find verses that seem out of place. And in the original, in the original text, when, when the, the Bible was originally written, we didn't have chapter breaks and we didn't have verses and in some cases, the names didn't even match the names that we have for them today. They were are slightly different as well. And while we are very thankful for, for men that, that went and, and studied these, and when you know what, this, we need to break this down so it's easier to find these, these verses and these passages, and, and this kind of goes together with this, they did occasionally make mistakes. And 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 actually belongs in chapter 10. Uh, Paul is there talking, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul is talking to the, the Corinthians, giving this message about uh, offending uh, others and, and the relationship they were to have with others. And he calls for them there to be imitators of him as he is imitators of Christ. And so uh, we're going to begin reading our passage today in verse 2. Uh, and, in, and as we do so, I want us to read it and I want us to really... Um, it's easy for us to take these passages and to go, this is traditionally what I've always been taught this passage means. I want us to read these passages today and really think about it uh, from the words of Paul and in the context that it was written. Let's read together starting in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything <clears throat> and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is the one and the same as the women whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not, co excuse me, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from women, but women from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but women for the man's sake. Therefore, the women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man that has his birth through the woman." And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that a man, that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practices, nor have the churches of God." 
Now, there are some things that really jump out in these passages. As we spend some time looking at this and reading this, there's some things that just, just kind of pop right out of the text right off the bat. For some, it is this thing about the coverings. You have uh, rules here. You have instructions given about men and their head coverings. And you have instructions given about women and having their heads covered. And it just seems like there's a lot going on there. And then you also, as we get down in there, you have this talk about hair length. You have men with long hair, and that's a dishonor. But men, women with long hair, well, that's, that's for their glory. I'm going to be honest. This is one of those passages that whenever, whenever it is read, and, and I'm guilty of this myself, I think we probably go, you know what? I think I'm just going to keep on reading. I think I'm just going gonna, gonna to scoot on down a little bit. Oh, look here. These next couple of verses, they talk about the Lord's Supper. We can, we can read about the Lord's Supper. That's, we can read about that all day long. But that other stuff, that's, that's a little bit difficult. That's hard. What is that talking about? I think we miss a very important lesson if we do that. A lesson that I believe I was missing for, for a long time. I believe if more people understood this single section of Scripture alone, that many of the problems that we have in, I'm going to air quote this, religion, many of the problems we have in religion today could be rectified. Many of the problems that we have in the family today could be rectified. Now that thought there makes this passage seem kind of important, doesn't it? I hope that that thought will make you want to study this passage more on your own. That's what I want to do today is spend some time looking in, in, in the Scripture here at what, what this passage is talking about. To begin, we need to remember something. There's something very important to remember about this, about this passage, but specifically about this whole letter. The whole backdrop of the Corinthian letter is written to Christians living in Corinth. And as you might remember, as we've talked about in, in sermons past, Corinth was a particularly wicked and ungodly place. There was a lot of things going on in Corinth that weren't right in the city at large. And over and over and over again throughout this letter, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and drawing their attention back to the life that they came out of, to their former life. Look over in 1 Corinthians 6 with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. He's like, look at the former life that you lived. Look at the things that you were doing. This, these things that are going on around you in the city used to be a part of that, but you have been called out of that. You, are, you, you have been changed from that. In fact, he also goes on to tell them in chapter 5, says if, if, if you have not, if you continue to walk in that former life, there is to be a certain relationship that the brethren have with you. He said, I wrote in you, in chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote in you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's telling them that, that over and over again, look at your former lives. In fact, all the way back at the beginning of the, of the, of the book in chapter 1, he is looking at them and comparing the wisdom that they were currently involved in 
I'm going to be of Paul or I'm going to be of Apollos. You're looking at their wisdom and talking about the wisdom of that age, the wisdom of the world, and mocking it in comparison to God's wisdom. And so over and over again, he's making these com- comparison and contrasts to, to the former life that they lived and the life that they needed to now live in Christ. And it's almost as if Paul is asking this question. It's as if he's trying to get this question into the hearts of the Corinthians. Corinthians, who are you going to belong to? Now, not in light of chapter 1. Not, not are you going to belong to a person. Who are you going to belong to? Are you going to belong to Corinth? Are you going to belong to the former life that you were pulled out of and to the life that is going on around you? Or are you going to belong to God? I think that is a marvelous question. That is a question that we need to ask ourselves today. Kyle, who am I going to belong to? We need to ask ourselves this each and every day. Are we going to belong to the lifestyles and the things that are going on around us? Or are we going to belong to God? The question we are asking then is, to whose or to what's authority am I going to submit to? And believe me, we are going to submit to some things authority. It may be our own authority. We may may kind of have that attitude. We may say, I make my own decisions. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm independent. And that's, that's still a form of submission. It's a submission to an authority. You believe that it's your own authority. I would argue that it's really just a submission to the world, conformity to the world's authority and the world's thoughts. I remember in high school, and I reveal a little bit about myself. I embarrassingly was part of this group. But I remember the group of kids that said, I'm not going to be like the rest of you all. I'm not going to be like the jocks, and I'm not going to be like the, the, the nerds or the, the popular kids or the... You name it, whatever click you can think of. I'm not going to be like, I'm going to be my own person. And I'm going to go over here in the corner with all these other people that are being their own person. And we're all going to be just the, the same. We're not going to conform. We're going to conform together and not conforming. It didn't make a whole lot of sense then. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense now. But a lot of times that's the mindset that we kind of have. I'm not going to be like everybody else. But then we turn around and we act like everybody else. We need to choose. Where is my authority going to lie? That's the most important message taught in 1 Corinthians 11. We need to read that and we need to see the focus of 1 Corinthians 11, these first 16 verses. 1 Corinthians 11 is all revolving around verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that... I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. That is the whole point of this passage. It's pointing towards authority. It's pointing towards roles in in what God has created and the order that he has set out. But then that leads to the question, well, what about all that head covering stuff then? If verse 3 is the point, why do we talk about all this other stuff in here? What's going on there? Well, again, I said at the beginning of this lesson, let's remember this in the context of what Paul is talking about. Throughout the whole book, he's been talking about the former life that they left. So what is going on? It would do us well to remember some of the things that are going on in Corinth at this time. I want to spend some time looking at uh, the, the history here just for a moment of some of the paganistic things that were going on, and particularly sex reversal that was going on in Corinth. I mentioned Corinth is a very wicked, wicked place. And the people of God need to decide, are we going to belong to Corinth or are we going to belong to God? 
One of the very common occurrences in Corinth was the worship of false deities. And two, very pertinent to our study today, are the two I have up here. This, this uh, one on the left, Bacchus Dionysius, uh, that, that was the Greek and the Roman names for the same God. He was known as the liberator. He was the God of wine and chaos. Uh, and really, when you start studying him, it becomes very clear that most of the world today is still worshiping him, whether they, they really give a name to him or not. Because he was the God that said, you come as you are and you be what you want to be. You want to be, you, you want to come out here and be wild and crazy and not have to listen to any rules, then you can do that. Or if you're, if you're a, a, a housewife, but you don't want to be a housewife anymore, you can go and you can be whatever you want to be and call it worshiping Dionysius. This was, this was the thought behind him. He was the God of the oppressed. Now, he's not the true God of the oppressed. We understand who the true God of the oppressed is through, through Jehovah. But he was the God of the oppressed that said, if the society thinks you're doing something that is, that is not right, if, this, if you don't really fit into society, you just come worship me. I will make a place for you to fit in. The other God here, and the re, we don't have a picture for this one because there's not a, there's not a picture worth even looking at of this goddess, is the goddess Aphrodite. And in both of these, they were extremely common in Corinth. And this, this quote that I put up by Strabo, the, Strabo was a Greek philosopher. He once noted that in Corinth, the temple to Aphrodite had over a thousand prostitutes within it. And this is who you would worship with in the temple of Aphrodite. Now, now many scholars and commentators believe that, that that number is probably exaggerated because the size of the temple, it doesn't make sense to think that. But what we see in Strabo's comment what we see is that these, these types of, of, of paganism, this type of wickedness was very prevalent. This was a huge part of the Corinthian culture. And one thing that was common in both of these cults is the practice of sexual reversal. Now that, that sounds like a terrible thing and, and there's a bunch of terrible stuff that goes with it. It involved all sorts of various surgeries and plenty of immoral acts. But, but the thing that we really want to focus on was the part of it that really didn't seem that wicked. There was a part of this, the sexual reversal, that's like, that's, that's really not that big a deal, is it? Because what would happen... This less wicked side of this is that the men and women who worship these gods, they would just fashion their hair to mimic that of the opposite sex. Women would cut their hair very short or in some cases shave their heads completely off or they would tie their hair up so that it, it, it appeared uh, and, and, and seemed to look like that of a man's. And likewise, the men would grow their hairs out very long. They were described as having flowing locks. And they would even make their faces obscured with the, view, uh, with the use of something as such as a veil. Again, to make themselves appear as women. This is what's going on at the exact same time that Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians here. And specifically, what he's, what, as he's talking here in chapter 11. In his letter regarding the covering and uncovering of the head, these things are the backdrop of what's going on. And it's going on in many passages. Although there would have been Jews in the church at Corinth, most of the church at Corinth was made up of Romans and Greeks. They were con converts out of paganism, converts out of the worship of Dionysius and Aphrodite and Zeus and you name it. These were people that came out of this subculture and were converted to God. And Paul deals with paganism 
over and over and over again throughout the first epistle of Corinthians. The old pagan religion of Dionysius, it had exerted influence on these recent converts in Corinth. They were in, in chapters eight, or in chapter eight, the whole first 13 verses, we won't read all of that. Uh, I'm sorry, the whole chapter. We won't read the whole thing, but in, in that, they were very uncomfortable with meat that had been offered to idols. And so Paul has to deal with that. This is, this is still a part of their, their thoughts. When they see this meat offered to idols, they're, they're seeing it as, well, wait a minute, that was offered to Dionysius. Well, wait a minute, as Christians, you should know Dionysius is nothing. He doesn't exist. And so, so throughout the, the chapter, we are seeing over and over again Paul handling and discussing these things. In chapter 10, verse 21, turn over there and read chapter 10, verse 21 with me. He says here, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He was telling them that they, they, had, they were having to be admonished for attending these, these sacrificial meals in the pagan temples. And in these Bacchic feasts, the, the Dionysius feasts, they were filled with drunkenness. That was a, a key part of the liberator. You can see he's holding grapes in his hand. There's grapes down here at the bottom of the study. This, this was so much tied to Dionysius, this, this idea of just free, free booze. It, the wine is overflowing. And so these feasts were oftentimes full of drunkenness. And in, in the latter part of chapter in chapter 11, we see him, he, see him addressing this, the drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. But also one of the more iconic things of the Dionysius culture was that of this madness. This, this, uh, there was all sorts of chaos going on. He, the, the liberator, the god of chaos. There, there was just so much going on that just didn't make any sense. People dressing as opposite sexes and, and all sorts of shouts and screams. And, and it was a very wild uh, uh, thing to to behold but in chapter 14 paul is saying that some of the same things are going on within the church chapter 14 verse 23 there he says therefore if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter will they not say that you are mad he's saying the things that you're doing lord's supper being drunken at the Lord's Supper, going to, to these uh, pagan feasts. Even whenever people come in here, you all are acting like the things that they see in these different religions, the worship of Aphrodite, the worship of Dionysius. We see these things going on within the church, and that should not be. According to one author, there are 17 different passages in the book of 1 Corinthians alone that reflect this Dionysiac cult. And so we need to keep that in our minds, that Paul is, is actively facing a real problem that is going on in the culture of Corinth at that time. And that's part of the context of this writing. But now there's a second part of the context of this writing as well. As well. We need to understand some of the wording that he uses. Uh, a brief Greek word study, we won't get very, diff, uh, very difficult in this at all, uh, but there's three words that we want to look at. The, these words on the board, kata which means, or is translated, covered. I've practiced this word so much, no more, just, bleh. Acatacalyptos, acatacalyptos, which means uncovered, or excuse me, is translated uncovered, and parabolion, a covering, the way it's translated. Uh, the new, we're going to look at these one at a time, uh, and, and, 
and spend some time looking at what they mean. Uh, the first one we're going to look at is katah, which again translated cover. The New King James Version, the ESV, the NIV, they all, they all translate this in verse 4. They say, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head or something very near that, something along those lines. Uh, and in verse 4 we see uh, that there's a general that this is a general word though the new american standard has it uh, uh, has it recorded as as this uh having something on his head while praying or prophesying uh, the Coleman, the christian standard bible and the contemporary english version they all translate it the same way too having something on his head if we were to look this word up if you were to get out a a, a greek dictionary Go find kata, find out what it means. We're going to find that nowhere in its meaning does it mean cover. It never has that meaning of cover. Now, it does have several different meanings, and it's all depending upon the usage and upon the preceding words before it. But most often, and right here, it means down from. If you're to go down from Jerusalem and down to Egypt or That word, katah, that's what it means, down from. Now, it is used in the sense of the head here, so we know why it was translated covered. It does mean something covering the head, but specifically it means something hanging down from the head. But what? This is going to be a a key as we we go through these passages. What is hanging down from the head? The word katah is a general word. It doesn't it doesn't give us what is doing the covering. It's similar to me saying the back of my truck is covered. Is it covered with a tarp? Is it covered with a, a truck topper? Is it t- covered with a camper? Is it covered with trash? We, we, you know, it's just a general word meaning something hanging down from, something covering and hanging down. So the second word we want to look at, kata, translated covered, general word meaning down from, the second one is akatakalyptos. That word means or is translated uncovered. It's used in verse 5 and in verse 13. And it actually does mean uncovered. If you look that one up in the Greek, so what does this mean? This is the Greek word, this akatakalyptos, what does that mean? It's going to have one thing, uncovered. You did, we take the, the coverings off of the Lord's Supper tables and set them to the side. Now they are akatakalyptos, they are uncovered. It is the opposite of the word Catacalypto, which means, guess, covered. You have uncovered and covered. Catacalypto is used in verses 6 and 7. Um, but these words simply mean uncovered and covered. But one thing to note, again, these are general words. These words do not define what is doing the covering. We must view the context of the word if we are going to know. So again, we've had... We've had te- two words technically, kata, which means translated covered, but is a general word meaning something hanging down from. Akatakalyptos, which means uncovered, but is a general word. And then we find in verse 15, this last word, parabolion. Now, parabolion is different from the first two. It's translated a covering. And if we were to look it up, this is the first Greek word which actually is specific. It is a covering, but it is a covering with something, and it gives a definition of that. It literally means to cover something with a veil or a mantle or a wrapper, something, just some sort of uh, uh, covering in, in that sense. These are the, the three words that are used by Paul in this passage. 
Now, why is that important? Why are we spending time this morning going over the Greek? Don't you know, Kyle, that we don't speak Greek? We don't need to know the Greek. But I wanted to point out by looking at this, why I think this is important is because we need to remember that what Paul is talking about here has absolutely nothing to do with just a fashion. He's not just talking about what is fashionably looks good or doesn't look good. He has a point in bringing all of these things up. This is 100% looking back to verse 3. 100% looking back to the point being made there. God has set up roles of authority. God has put things in an order. Maybe we begin to understand how this all starts to fit together in light of the context of what's going on in the background, what's going on with the worship of Dionysius, and what's going on with the worship of Aphrodite, what's going on in Corinth, and, and what's going on with Paul's message here to these people in that day. Now, as I mentioned earlier, these Greek words used here, all except for parabolion, they're all general words. The context has to tell us what they're referring to. So what's the context of chapter 11? I believe that answer is given in verses 14 and 15. When we skip down to verse 14 and 15, he says, Does not even even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What is not to hang down from man? What is not to, to hang long down from him? Well, according to verse 14, it is his hair. Remember the context of what's going on here. Dionysius, Bacchus, Aphrodite. These men would make themselves to look like women in that worship. That should not be a part of the Lord's body. What is to be covering a woman's head? The context it seems to indicate here that it is her hair. In fact, verse 15, verse 15 is very, very interesting in this study because verse 15 uses that word parabolion for covering. It literally is telling her her long hair is her veil, is her covering. So let's think back again to remember the cultural backdrop. Men acting and even trying to physically appear as women and women acting and even trying to physically appear as men. Again, these are purposeful attempts by the culture of Corinth to repudiate and even obliterate the identity that God has bestowed upon mankind. And that is what these people have been pulled out of to make up the body of Christ. And we can understand how they would still have struggles with that. Maybe there are women in the, con- in, in the congregation here who still have their heads cut very, very short. Maybe there are men that are still wearing long hair, maybe even still wearing a veil covering their face. We need to think about this again, looking back to context of verse 3. We're going to point back to verse 3 every time as we study this. God has established roles of authority. Men need to be men. Women need to be women. And that means obviously, that men need to look like men and women need to look like women. We shouldn't be trying to physically change ourselves. But more importantly than the physical aspect of that is the point that he's making in verse 3. Men need to be subject to Christ. That means men need to choose to follow him. He doesn't throw a rope around their neck and say, I'm going to drag you into submission. Men need to choose to submit themselves to Christ. And women need to subject themselves 
to men. Now, interesting here, it says in verse 3, and man is the head of a woman. This is most likely referring to the husband and wife relationship, but we still see how that is applicable to the church and to, and to church leadership and to church authority. Women need to submit themselves. Now, once again, this doesn't mean for, for us husbands and for, for the leaders of the church, we don't, we don't take a rope and throw it around them and say, I'm going to subjugate you. They, they need to choose to subject themselves to men. And that also means, if we're seeing the comparison between man and Christ and then women to men, that men, we have a responsibility in how we lead these women. But I want you to note what this passage does not say. This passage does not say that this is done because men are better than women. Men are more apt to lead than women. In fact, a lot of cases in, in life, we find that women are actually more apt to lead than men. What this passage says is that men are to submit themselves to Christ. Women are to submit, submit themselves to men, and Christ submits himself to God. That puts all of a sudden not only a hierarchy of, of the order in which God is set, but a leveling ground of the equality in which God has created. Who was Christ said? God the Father, of whom Christ was equal to. God the Father is not shown as being more important than the Christ because they're both equally a part of the same being. But in their equality, in their levelness, Christ submitted himself to the Father. Likewise, men, we are not more important. In fact, that, that message is taught elsewhere. If we look back at verses 7 through 12 of this chapter, we see in there it teaches that the man was created in the image of God. And women came from man and was made in, in man's image and, and was there for the purpose of, of glorifying the man, bringing, uh, is, to, is the glory of man. What that means is, that, one, that husbands know this, that it's not say, a passion. You can go to your wife and say, you're supposed to just be talking me up. Our wives aren't supposed to give us big heads. Our wife is pushing us to glory. Just as we are following Christ to his glory. What we see in these passages is really woman, woman was made in the image of God, uh, man, man was made in the image of God. You're both made in the image of God. However, this doesn't make man more important or independent from women because man cannot even exist without woman. We see over and over and over again the point being made that God has a role for each one. God had a role for Christ. God had a role for the man. God had a role for woman, but he wasn't placing emphasis on which was more important. Again, all of this is to show a very pivotal truth. God doesn't, God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't look, oh, this is more important. This creature was more important than that creature in, in regards to, to his, his creation in mankind. God doesn't show partiality, no. But God does demand holiness. He demands it. When we consider our roles as man or woman, we must choose to be holy. We must choose to be set apart to the will of God. This, is, this will, that will is men regard Christ as your head, as your source of authority. Women regard men as your head, as your source of authority. And Christ regards God as his source of authority. Well, you know what? We kind of break that down again. You know what you see at the source of authority for all things? God. 
God is the source of authority. If, we are, if I'm viewing God as my source of authority, as we talked about in, in, in class today, I'm going to look to Christ and to try and to be conformed to his image. Wives, women, if you are regarding God as your source of authority, you're going to submit and subjugate yourselves to men, not having anything to do with equality, but having everything to do with holiness, with doing what God has said. But if that's what this is all about, what is that? Well, wait a minute. What does that leave us today with head coverings? Where does that leave us with what this, all this has to say about head coverings? What does that mean? There's one thing, uh, two things I want to point out for that, and then we're going to, to wrap this lesson up. Because there's been a couple of things that have been taken from these passages and have been perverted, uh, have, have been twisted a little bit in, into our day today by, by various commentators and scholars. Some have said this is, this is a perfect place for us to go and to see that at one point women had a larger part in the worship service of the church. Women were allowed to, to get up and to lead prayers and women were allowed to prophesy, which is much... Uh, very similar to, to preaching, uh, is used in that same way of, of presenting a message from God. And so that, this was the context that they would use that. that. Women had the right to do that as long as they had some token form of, of subjugation, they were allowed to do that. They're not showing their authority over man. But I want to suggest this wasn't directed towards public worship assemblies of the church. We know that because we can look over just a couple chapters, the 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34. In these passages, it says the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subjugate themselves, just as the law also says. Now, we've talked about this in the past, and we know Paul was not saying, women, you come in the doors, you zip your lips, and you sit down. No. There's so many passages that point to the fact that, that women are an active part of the worship assembly. We teach one another through songs. We pray with one another. In fact, there's countless examples of women uh, proclaiming amen at the, at, at the end or during the reading of the word of God. This was not to say, women, you just sit down and, and, and hush. This was, again, pointing to back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. The same thought that's there. We're respecting authority. We're respecting God's order and God's roles. And so this passage couldn't be talking about the role of the, of the woman within the worship assemblies, that she is to have her head covered uh, and, and be able to pray and prophesy. Now, there is a lot of debate about what verse 5 then actually means. And I believe verse 5 has room for debate. But women being an active part of leading the, the public worship assembly does not belong in that debate. Paul has answered that. So then what does this mean for us today? Does this mean that I should wear a head covering? Does this mean that I don't have to wear a head covering? Does this mean that, uh, or more commonly, a, a scarf or a, a doily? Or, does this, this mean that I need to have a ruler with me whenever I go out? Is, is my hair long enough? Or is my hair not long enough? Is, is it too short? Is, it, is there some sort of unscriptural length given where I need to get it cut? And with that thought, what about, what about women with short hairstyles? Is this talking about women with short hairstyles today? Is that bad? Or another point, and a point that is, might sound ridiculous, but it's active in central Kentucky. It's active in Lexington, Kentucky right now. What about women that wear their heads up in a ponytail? Or women that, that put their hair up in a bun? Is that sinful for women to do that? I say all these things to point out this. 
This passage is talking about respecting authority. This passage is focusing everything back. Something in the culture of Corinth, something in the culture of Corinth was causing Christians to not respect the authority. Now, certainly, I want to, I want to say this. Certainly there is nothing wrong with wearing a head covering. Absolutely nothing in this passage says you should not wear a head covering. And if you feel like you must, if your conscience feels like it would be violated, uh, by, by all means, my, my point this morning is not to violate anybody's conscience. And likewise, a point taken from that, because it's taken from the exact same verse, men, if someone comes in here wearing a baseball cap, this passage does not dictate they have to remove their baseball cap. Uh, that's supported nowhere else in Scripture. That point is made directly from this passage. But other places in Scripture show that the Levitical priests did wear hats. They wore turbans as a part of their service to God. Now, if you feel it necessary, like I do, you won't find me wearing a hat. You won't find me praying with a hat on. It's something that I am not comfortable with. But I will not hold to this passage of saying this is a firm, hard, fast point by God to say this is what you wear and don't wear because the point of the passage is not about what you wear and don't wear. It was about verse 3. What we see from this passage is that if something in the culture of Corinth was causing saints to fall into sin, of not regarding God's teaching about the role of the sexes, that can happen today as well. If there is something in our culture today that causes us to fall into that sin, we must abstain from it. We cannot dress like, we cannot act like, and we cannot engage in activity that represents a disregard for what God has said about men being men and women being women. And you might want me, as I would not desire to, but would like to know myself, you, it might be good to say, well, let's just list everything that might represent that. And we could be here all day thinking of things that would represent that, things that, that should not be a part of the public worship or excuse me, should not be a part of, of the way we convey and carry ourselves and, and involve ourselves in. But instead of making that list, let me make my final point. What God is calling the Corinthians to, and what God is calling us to, is the exact same things that God called the Israelites to. Constant holiness. Let's look at these few passages, and the lesson will be yours. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from, all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hooves, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these animals among those who chew the cud or among those who divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. <clears throat> it also follows, as we go through the rest of the chapter, all of these different types of animals, all of these different dietary restrictions on the children of Israel that they were not allowed to eat. We flip over a little bit more to Leviticus 19, verse 19. Let's read there. <coughs> Leviticus 19, 19 says, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. 
You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon, upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Apparently, God has a problem with certain types of, of foods and certain types of breeds of species and certain types of fabrics. No, no, God doesn't have a problem with that. Why did they have these regulations? It wasn't because, as some have pointed out, it wasn't because some food was just better than the other. Be the first one to say anyone that's ever eaten bacon knows there's a lot of good things about pork. God wasn't making these points because of that. In fact, we can see that for certain with 100% accuracy because we can see that these things were directly linked in the New Testament to the Gentiles. God's creation. They weren't, they weren't somehow a lesser breed of His creation. No. On the other hand, God was proving a point. He was making a point in restricting them to these choice uh, in these in these choices. Whenever we look at First Corinthians eleven again, and look at verse forty four through forty five, we can see that point loud and clear. He says, "Therefore, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth." For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. He also would tell Aaron in Leviticus 10 and verse 10, after the death of his sons, because they did not regard God as holy, and they took fire what was unauthorized. In Leviticus 10, verse 10, he tells them, talking about their relationship in their service with God and specifically drinking wine and strong drink in verse 8, it says, make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. God's, God's commandments aren't just because God thinks, this is, this is a, a suitable thing to do. This would be interesting. I'd like to do that. God is proving a point. The Israelites, when they were in the kitchen, had to be thinking about holiness. Where did this meat come from? Did this meat come from, from a pork or from a camel? Or did this come from something that we're not supposed to have? Was it shellfish? Can't have that. When they were working with the animals, when they were separating the cattle in the, in, in the times of, of mating, they said, well, we, we can't breed these different types of, uh, of cattle. We have to think about holiness in the barn. When we're in the sewing room, putting fat or sewing our, our clothes, we have to think about holiness because we can't mix certain uh, pieces of, of fabric. And when we were in the field, when we're planting seed, guess what? We need to be thinking about holiness. All the time, the Israelites were to be thinking about holiness. We need to have that same mentality. Paul is calling the Corinthians to holiness. He would tell the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, abstain from every form of evil. The King James Version says abstain from all appearances of evil. The Corinthians were to, were to abstain from any appearance that the church reflected the evilness of the world they lived in. Likewise, we are called today, we must abstain from every appearance of evil and we must be holy. What about you today? Are you holy? Because God still commands holiness. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16, Peter talks about that. Referring, referring back to Leviticus 11. Think about that. Because God, He brought them up from Egypt. He brought them up from slavery. 
And he was brought them up so that he could be their God. And they need to be holy because he was holy. He has brought us out of slavery as well. He gives us the opportunity to be free from the slavery of sin, spiritual death. And he is going to be our God. We will be his people and we need to be holy for he is holy. The Hebrew writer declares that without holiness or without sanctification, it is impossible to see God. So again, will you be holy? Maybe you're thinking today, maybe you're thinking, well, that's just something that's too far out of my reach. That's something I can't be. I can't be holy. And I'd have to agree with you. I'd have to agree that we can't on our own be holy. But it's not far out of God's reach to make us holy, to give us what we need to be holy. We won't do it on our own. We won't do it by our own power. We won't do it by our, our, our own will. We, won't, we will do it through the strength which we get from our Lord. With God, it is never too far out of our reach. We need to remember 1 Corinthians 6. These people who Paul was calling to holiness were murderers. They were fornicators. They were adulterers. They were homosexuals. They All these unholy things the Corinthians had been doing, yet they were washed, they were sanctified, made holy, and they were justified in Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God by the putting off of your sins in baptism and by the putting on of a new life in Christ, He can make you holy. But you must choose. You must choose then to be submissive, submissive to Him. And if that's your desire this morning, I want you to know that we stand here ready to assist. We would, we, we would love to be a part of helping you come to Him. But you also must choose to continue in holiness. If you have struggled in, in continual holiness, uh, after, after your baptism, remember that it doesn't stop there. And if there's some way in which we can help you with that this morning, I encourage you, please let it be known right now as we stand and as we sing.